think we are witnessing a transformation in the employee-employer, quote, contract. Success doesn't come by efficiency, it comes by having something people want to buy. If you can claim a piece of choice verbal real estate, good for you, because that's highly valuable. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing as a function has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast with Shaheen and Doug Garnett. A couple of good topics, so let's get started. Got something on logos. Yeah, there was a Harvard Business Review article. It came out a couple of years ago, but they were promoting it on Twitter. So I thought I'd go look at it. And it has a headline which says, A study of 597 logos shows which kind is most effective. Awesome. And you know, being who I am, that lit off all kinds of alarm bells. And I, <laughs> I, I want to go look at this, see what it is. And in fact, it attempts to take the issue of what logos are best, whatever best means, and come up with the answer. And I just hate research like this because, you know, there are things in a logo fits into a big world around it. And what's best has to do with how the logo fits into the big world around it. So this attempted to be a pretty broad statement about logos. Instead of saying, well, we were looking at the question of identifying packaging on the shelf in a retail store, a hardware store, they just kind of say, well, these are the best logos. And I, this stuff drives me crazy because you can't know it. Yeah, so I looked at it after you pointed it out to me and I had a similar reaction that what about the name of the company? Mm -hmm. So if the name of the company is highly descriptive, then maybe the logo can afford to be not so descriptive. If the name of the company is Jigsaw Puzzles Are Us, then maybe the logo doesn't have to look like a jigsaw. Mm -hmm. But if the name of the company, like in their example, is N-O-X-U, which is just a combination of letters, well, then really you're trying to instill meaning into this meaningless word. That's a different challenge. And like you said, how does it fit into your overall branding? Who's the audience? What is our overall strategy? Where's it going to be used? You know, Right. And do we anticipate growing up and being an overall big gaming company? Or are we going to really focus on this particular narrow niche? So. All of those play a role that seem to be rather ignored, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they are. And, and, you know, we get a lot of these studies. This reminded me of one that has always tortured me in advertising. There have been multiple studies that go out and they say, all things being equal, we found that humorous ads are remembered better than any others. And I think I just have this problem with all things being equal. Because in this hierarchy of what matters in an advertisement, let's go with TV ads, right? TV ads. Right. In the hierarchy, I mean, whether it's humorous or not, is down here in the bottom in the in the murky depths of that stuff. What matters is, is it a product or brand I care about? Do you have anything meaningful to say? Are the images attracting me to the topic and to that meaning that's left behind? And so the way they do those studies is they get random ads, put them on a reel, and they'll have six ads in a row. One of them will be humorous. And then they'll talk about which ads do you remember? And they'll say, look at this. They remembered it. Except the six ads have no connection to each other. They have no connection to the people who are watching them. They aren't targeted in the sense that you would target ads on TV, which is go to an audience where you think you have a good chance of somebody being interested in your product. And then all these companies run off and throw $100 million down on an ad that's humorous, but meaningless, and think they've done the right thing. Yeah, and sometimes they don't even remember the product. 
you just remember the joke. <laughs> I know. I, I bring that up to my students. And the first time you bring it up, they're like, huh, really? And by the end of the course, they're all like, oh, yeah, I saw this ad. I have no idea what it was for. Exactly. How many times do you hear? I don't know whose ad it was, but it was really funny. <laughs> right, right. And it's fundamentally, it's a problem we see in complexity. And it actually is related to complexity because there are problems you can reduce into their component parts analyze the components, and then add the pieces back up and you're just fine. But communication doesn't work that way. You can't just isolate on what's the best logo. The question is what works in your communication overall. So if that logo is going to be with a tagline, you don't have to worry about how descriptive the logo is. You know, what's descriptive? Well, you know, a puzzle piece, that's kind of tacky descriptive, but not really interesting descriptive. You know, it's all about how do you use your whole communication and your package and your product and all that stuff come together. Right. And you're right. Company names as important as anything. Company names and taglines. and. But one thing, this is my recurring rant. A disproportionate amount of conversation in marketing circles, at least on Twitter and LinkedIn, is about how everybody else is doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. And I just don't like that. I mean, mm -hmm. it is true that, unfortunately, there are enough examples of people doing it wrong that that is not an invalid way of going about it right now. However, there are many occasions where whoever the poor soul was who did what they did was trying to solve a particular problem with all the constraints that we don't know about. And if we did know about those constraints, we probably couldn't come up with anything better than yeah. he or she did. Yeah. So let's not immediately dump on something because from afar we think, well, how dumb can people get? Well, they're not dumb. They're trying to do their job and it's a different problem that they're trying to solve. Well, and the other thing I'll put in here even is that we develop a lot of these rules and we make them ironclad, like logos need to be descriptive or names have to have some this or that to them. But you know, let's look at some of the really powerful brand names like uh, Coca-Cola. <laughs> Kellogg's? Do you think Kellogg's would come out of any brand committee these days? If you went send it to an agency for picking brand names, do you think anybody right. would pick Kellogg's? I don't think so. Well, I tell you, the number one requirement right now is whether the URL is available. It's <laughs> true. Well, and actually the internet has done that, which is it really has shifted to, is the URL available and is it distinctive enough? So let me tell you a little story here, which is I have a client who was named Mission Athlete Care. And we did ads for them that were tremendously effective. And in the first ad, their magic ingredient was a fabric called EnduraCool. From their first ad, they got huge boost in searches of EnduraCool. And that was really significant. They eventually discarded that thing. And I was frustrated because, good grief, think about that name, Mission. Go do a Google search for mission. Yeah. You know, you're in Never Never Land. Uh, don't they make uh, taco shells and uh, hot sauce? <laughs> you know, I mean, whose mission? What kind of mission is it? Is it an overseas mission? Is it a diplomatic mission? You know, it just was such, such a bland name. There's just no way that anybody's going to remember it, certainly in order to search. Absolutely. I call this the verbal real estate. Mm -hmm. That if you can claim a piece of choice verbal real estate, you're really lucky and good for you because that's highly valuable. It is. Like Sun Microsystems for a while where I worked had we are the dot and dot com. Mm -hmm. And I thought dot was a piece of choice public real estate. Yeah. The company claimed and it worked for a really good while. Now it worked until the dot com bubble burst. And then we were jokingly saying we are the O in all the economy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, and hence the difficulty with all this too, is that, you know, this article has this perfect thing about logos. So I was telling you earlier, I worked with Nordic Track and Nordic Track made those ski machines, you know, that you can all go ski with yep. and Nordic yep. Track, it's the ski machine, but then they decided to compete in strength training machines. So they came out with the Nordic Flex and I did a lot of consumer research and people would not let them go anywhere other than Nordic Track. Because that was the company name and the company name covered everything. One of the reasons I'm really hesitant to name a company after a product these days, because you need flexibility. Well, this also is a segue into, I work with a lot of startups and some big companies, but it pains me to see how startups dilute their marketing budget by chasing too many brands. Mm -hmm. The name of the company is something. The name of the product is something else. Mm -hmm. And then there's another feature that is yet something else. And customers aren't going to care at that level. If you're a $50 million company, they're not going to remember all these brands. You're, you know, They're not reading Lord of the Rings where they need to learn about the world in which you were telling the story. <laughs> Where you need to keep track of elfin names from thousands of years in the past. I mean, they have a map up front. This is the landscape. This is the world that you're in. That doesn't work. So my rule of thumb is that every billion dollars in revenue allows you one more name. <laughs> <laughs> if you're below $1 billion, the name of the company, the name of the product, the name of the thing, they all need to be one thing. Well, I see people that will like invent an engine that's inside of their product. And so they have to trademark it. I mean, the extreme being pretty soon your brochure, every third word has a trademark symbol after it. Right. But what happens is that, yes, you know, so they want to own that thing because they want to become the Kleenex of that algorithm. And you know, you don't set yourself up and become it. You become it because people love it. And Kleenex became the Kleenex of tissues, not because they picked the name Kleenex and all that stuff, but because it worked and they had a name. A relevant comment here is that when you trademark a name or a logo or whatnot, the purpose of the trademark is to protect the customer, not to give you a marketing advantage. Mm -hmm. The whole basis of it is that the customer is no longer confused about what they're buying. So you trademark it so that they buy the genuine article. Right. It's all about customers, not about you. I'm glad you said that because that's where I start my brand lecture with my first year students is a brand is not about you. A brand is a value to the customer. You know, I talk about if you're going to go buy soup and you didn't have brands in the soup aisle, you'd spend 25 minutes picking a can of cream of mushroom soup. But when you go and you say, oh, I want to get a Campbell's cream of mushroom soup because you know what you're going to get in that can, you can do it in about 15 seconds. It's a value to the customer of trust, of knowing what they're going to get, simplifying their lives. And the whole point of branding is to help our buyers out. Yeah. The painful part of the whole legal protection of the customer is that that's why all the brands have to be used as adjectives. That's why it's Kleenex brand tissue rather than Kleenex, right? So, <laughs> and if you look at the copy, there are pains to make it look XYZ software package, not just XYZ. <laughs> I know. Oh, Lord, it reminds me. I did a little work in skincare and, you know, you get into that. Everybody who does skincare is trying to stay away from the FDA because they don't want to fall under FDA right. rules. And so that's why all these skincare products reduce the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles. Because if you get rid of wrinkles, that's a medical result and that puts you under the FDA. So you get all this weasel wording stuff, you know, reduces the appearance of fine line. You know, you're like, why didn't you just say it gets rid of them? Well, you can't because the FDA then gets to come in and review your advertising and all of a sudden your proof you have to provide 
goes way up. Right. Part of what we're talking about is what is the overall strategy? Mm-hmm. And something we were talking about before the show was, I mean, ultimately it becomes the exit strategy. Yeah. Now, some people call it a liquidity event. Mm-hmm. rather than an exit strategy. <laughs> At what point are we going to cash out? And of course, over the recent past, financial engineering, in parentheses, a very valid branch of engineering, and parentheses, has come up with other ways that people do that. But still, exit strategy is a big deal. So, I mean, I suggested this a little bit because I was in this Twitter discussion about it. And I kind of jokingly threw it. A friend of mine once observed that, don't take offense, he said, Exit strategies are for amateurs. Now, what he didn't mean is it's an amateur gig. But once you choose an exit strategy, you're choosing not to be a professional in that company category in a sense, right? What you become is an expert in cashing in what you've built. And that's a whole different expertise. So it's not an amateur, but... And I remembered Steve Jobs around the dot-com era saying that he thought a lot of the CEOs were going to be disappointed that they didn't stop and build a company. So anyway, that got us into a lot of thinking. And one of the things I've noticed when companies work towards an exit is that they change the way the company runs and that changes their marketing because they're no longer marketing to customers, but they start marketing to investors. And I've seen some real disasters come out of that. I had one client who pulled forward a bunch of retail orders and then the deal didn't happen because they wanted to make their financials look good, right? And get the best price at the time of the deal. The deal fell through. And then six months later, they're back saying, nobody's buying. And I said, well, actually, there's plenty of people taking them out of the stores. It turned out the stores weren't buying because they filled up the stores too much in that effort. And they ended up laying off a lot of people and had a huge financial problem. And it comes back to they had stopped managing the company to be a company. They had managed it to exit, which I don't, I mean, believe me, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think it's really more we need to acknowledge it. You've got to be careful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And my view is that your best bet to maximize your value is to actually try to build a company. And of course, everything has a price in a capitalistic world. Mm -hmm. So you can say that I'm always open to an exit strategy. Yes, there is a price, but I'm not actively trying to sell the company. So I think you have to want to be building a company, even if your intent is to sell. The fact these guys were doing the Mickey Mouse move of pulling orders up early means that there was a problem. And, you know, I think that they were scrambling to try to make an exit strategy work when it really wasn't a natural fit. They weren't going to get the money they wanted. I worked with another company, similar thing, and they got a lot less than they So what you're saying also reminded me that when you market to investors, versus customers, obviously two different audiences interested in two different things. With investors, you can brag about your gross margin. (laughs) You can't really do that in front of customers, (laughs) for example. It's a good one. But then the other thing that we have noticed in the past really three years or so is recruitment marketing, as I call it, or employment marketing. And that is the active communication to potential employees and to existing employees. That's always been the case for areas that are really hard to recruit for, like cybersecurity and increasingly now with AI and some of these emerging technical fields where there aren't a lot of people who are experts at this. There are very few people who've been doing it for more than a few years because the whole thing hasn't been around a long time. So now you have to really pay attention to it. So that's a third branch of marketing the way I see it. Yeah. Well, and I think first is it's really hard to keep those straight. I don't even remember when, you know, when 30 years ago when we were working together and I was at headquarters, you were out in the field, around headquarters, I kept saying, I would turn to people and say, remember, don't believe your own PR. 
because press releases are designed for investors. They're not designed, you know, and so you have to kind of be careful about that. So I've always been aware of that difference. I guess here's the question I have for employees, which is I can think of all kinds of specific detail things about the company that would be important to potential employees. But what's the big message? I mean, what are you seeing as far as big messages that will matter to employees if you're trying to recruit at that level? Well, I think we are witnessing a transformation in the employee-employer quote, contract, so to say, implied contract. And the reason why I think we're seeing as much employee activism as we seem to be seeing right now, not always successfully on behalf of the employees, but you do see whistleblowers, you see people who pick it and make a big to-do about a company's actions. Mm -hmm. I think it's all because of the changing balance of power between employees and employers. And part of it is because right now it's hard to recruit and as a result, employees are asserting their desires. So if you want to recruit, you have to highlight cultural aspects of your company, the growth aspects that you provide for the employees, the transparency, diversity, inclusion. I call it justice because you also have to demonstrate to employees that you have a fair system that is going to govern their career. And one thing I learned, I read many years ago, and I think it may have been Nike's employee brochure, and I don't know who did it. I don't know whether it was a corporate policy, Mm -hmm. but it said your employment makes sense in the context of your life. Those words I thought were really smart and have have stayed with me as a result. And I think we are increasingly in a world where that must be the case, or you're not going to be able to recruit and retain. I think so. And I think, yeah, that, I think that all makes really good sense. I continue to be fascinated with how I think companies have blown it with the employee trust contract, whatever you call that, where they make it so clear to employees that you're here only because we can make money off of you and near-term money, not like you're here because we think by working together, we can build something really cool. And in 10 years, we're all going to be fabulously wealthy, but more like you're here because this month I get a better bonus. People hate that kind of stuff, you know, and that makes it a place that I don't want to work because I don't get valued for who I am. And AI is coming. So now you have to be careful so you don't come across as, I need you until I can replace you with AI. (laughs) (laughs) I I need you until I can find a robot that does your job and then you're out of here. uh... Right, because that's also an issue now, especially in jobs that are amenable to automation like that. How much did that hurt Uber, do you think, when they got a lot of hype about how they were going to... I remember there was a period of about three or four months where all of a sudden Uber was... I mean, we know they pushed heavy on self-driving, but there was an implication of what is this about Uber going to replace all these drivers because drivers had been pitched as their whole reason to exist. You know, they did this good thing for drivers. And I don't know. I don't have any measures of whether that hurt them or not, but it can't have helped. No, I don't believe so. I think they may have sold that unit, by the way, but it seemed like a VC-induced, technology-induced expansion of focus because we are operating or at least have purview over all this fleet. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be nice if we included some driverless cars? What I've seen them do now is to expand into other forms of delivery, like food delivery has become a big part of them. And we shall see how that works out. But there are companies that are doing completely driverless Mm -hmm. fleet that is designed to be taxis or just total self-driving. And they have license to operate in a few cities now in the world. 
including San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, they do. Do you want to tell us anything about the cost of metrics real briefly? Yes. Well, you know, metrics, we had a whole hour and a half session with JP and Andrew Wilshire a few months ago on a video that's on our website that we will put the link in. But something that I've observed is that there's a bunch of metrics that you get for free and then you get what you get. And that's in the category of looking under the lamppost. You get the data and you have to be careful not to get swayed by it too much because it totally shapes your perspective in a very insidious way. Like you said, all things being equal, as you said, never being the case, it still impacts you. So you need very deliberate effort to not be influenced by it. But then once you go beyond that, where do you get the data? So now it becomes a really big problem. You have to instrument your processes. You have to gather the right data. What sort of data architecture do you have? Where does that data go? It doesn't sit in your website. It flows to your marketing automation and it flows to your CRM and it flows to your ERP. And if there is in fact an order, like a customer order, then that needs to be shipped to wherever it needs to fulfill that order. And then if it's a physical device, then it has an implication on the supply chain. And then your CFO wants real-time data and your CEO wants real-time data. And then if you're gathering a lot of data, where is the cost of storage? If you're not going to access the data, you don't want it in expensive storage. If you're putting in a cloud, you don't want to take data out if you don't need it because data egress is really expensive. So the cost of this stuff starts becoming a real IT project. Well, it's funny because data is such a benign name. It sounds like a page out of the newspaper with a bunch of letters on it. Well, it's just a big, long table, but it's like what I call a gift that keeps on giving, which is like when you give somebody a dog, that's a gift that keeps on giving. There's good things about it, but get what? You take it to the vet and you got to clean up after it and you got to potty train it and you got to, right? So there's all these kinds of gifts that keep on giving. And I begin to wonder that a little bit about data, that there's kind of these extremes. Because on the other extreme, I've been surprised at how much I could learn with a simple search on Google Trends about broad issues. Then the question becomes how far down, at what level are you still learning significantly new things? And at what point do you get to where you're gathering data just because you should, not because it's delivering value? Is that a valid way to look at it? Well, absolutely, because something like 70, 80% of a data scientist's time is spent on cleansing the data, refining the data, curating the data, figuring out what data is relevant and what data isn't relevant. Now, some of that is in the context of AI, but even in simple analytics, there are things that you're gathering data you can report on, and there are things that you don't. And then you either triage or you have to assume, and there are multiple systems. So my point is that the cost of data and the cost of metrics goes up relatively rapidly as you try to get some decent data. And in many of the small companies that I work with, it's more than the marketing budget. So now you have to really temper your expectations on how much marketing metric you should expect, given just how much money you are able to even spend on marketing. Then the question is, okay, if I have X dollar more, do I want to use it to do more marketing? Or do I want to instrument all that marketing so I can do partial metrics that make me look good, but they're meaningless. What is the better spend of money for the organization? And does this get us cross over into that area that I start my marketing students with, which is you cannot efficiency your way to success. Efficiency is important. It's critical. We can't ignore it. On the other hand, success doesn't come by efficiency. It comes by having something people want to buy and having them know about it and having something somebody that's going to want to buy in five years and in 10 years. And that's where success comes from, not from 
efficiency by itself. And I think companies get distracted by efficiency and data fits into that with the idea that, well, okay, if I buy more data, then my media purchases will be X percent more effective and see that's a good trade-off. I think there's a lot of assumptions that go into how much more effective your purchases will be. Right on, right on. In fact, my view is that when you start doing more with your digital marketing, there comes a time when it's no longer a project, it becomes a product. Mm -hmm. And you have to have a product lifecycle methodology about it. What you're trying to do is more holistic, it's more end-to-end, and you have specifications for it. And specifications aren't just what's the cheapest way I can do X. It's what product am I building? What is my phase exit strategy? What's my release strategy? What feature function do I have on the roadmap? What is my change management? And then the pain comes back to the CMO and the CEO in that when they say, oh, this is really lovely data. Can I find out X? And you have to go back to them and say, sure. It'll be a three-month project to find out X. The pain really hits them with, but but we're supposed to be agile. We're supposed to be you know nimble. We're supposed to be, I don't know. I mean, my experience of data and databases is they're not nimble to change. Changes are not very nimble in those. If you have a good structure for analysis, you can change your reports quickly. Yeah, and definitely if you don't have the data. Now you have to go add the data and you have to establish a baseline and you have to build it and et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to leave us with this story that we both are familiar with, and that's about branding. So back to branding. One of my favorite examples of good branding is Cray Research. Mm -hmm. For those of you who don't know, Cray Research was the definitive supercomputing company globally. The founder of the company was Seymour Cray. So the name of the company was after him, Cray Research. The name of the product was Cray 1, Cray 2, Cray XMP, etc. And the joke was that when you looked at the actual physical computer, it spelled the letter C Mm -hmm. because it was kind of a semicircular donut shape so that people could go in there and the wires were optimized for distance. So Cray, 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 and a C at the end. And guess what? 10 years later... Cray meant supercomputing. Cray meant high performance. If you said my coffee cup is a Cray, people expected it to be a high performance coffee cup. So I thought it was an excellent branding strategy. Even today, that name has retained value, although it's not quite as well known as it was when you and I were in the 80s in the supercomputer business. But on the other hand, it stayed. But I will say it's good fortune when you have a name that has distinctiveness like Cray. Right. Use it. It's not wrong to use it. And I know a lot of tool companies, Craig Tools, Klein Tools, they're all kind of named after a person because then, you know what, when it's the right one and hard letters like C, hard C or a K are actually really quite good for for memory. Well, Craig was flying strong and a few years ago, they got bought by HPE. So they're now a brand under the HPE umbrella, even though my suggestion was that HPE could have renamed itself Hewlett Packard Cray, and now it also spelled HPC, which is high performance computing, <laughs> but they didn't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I made some recommendations in order to track and they didn't listen to me either. So, <laughs> All right, let's call it for this one. Thank you all for listening. Rate, comment, let us know what you think. That'll keep us going. And I appreciate that. And thank you, Doug. All right. Thank you. Enjoy. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.